Real quick before we get started, we're hosting a live taping of this show in New York City on November 1st. I'll be sitting down with Yale Law Professor Daniel Markovitz and Jennifer Wallace, author of the new New York Times bestseller, Never Enough. Together, the three of us are going to try to figure out why teenagers are so stressed, not to mention the rest of us, and what we can do to fix that. We'll get into how we can encourage kids to strive towards excellence without crushing them, the problem with meritocracy, and how AI will change the future of work and education. Join us for cocktails, conversation, and a dinner following. It would be great to meet you. To buy tickets and to get early invitations to our future events, follow the links in the episode notes. LinkedIn presents. I don't want to go completely woo-woo on people listening to this, but like the person I am when we started this conversation is different from the person I'm going to be when we when end this conversation because of that encounter. That, that there's something, but there's something there's something kind of beautiful about that. Mm-hmm. Every interaction is a moment of creation, yeah. like both in both directions. It's amazing. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is the next big idea. Today, Brian Lowry and Daniel Pink on what makes you you. A few months ago, I interviewed Brian Lowry about his book, Selfless, The Social Creation of You. It's a riveting, slightly unsettling read in which Brian, who teaches social psychology at Stanford, argues that you don't have an essential self. There's no you under your control. The voice in your head is the byproduct of all your social interactions, the feedback you get from the world. You're not a singular autonomous self. You're more of a joint venture between your biology and your relationships. Unnerving, right? Are we really all so malleable? If there's no essential me, then who the heck am I? Brian believes that embracing this view that we're social creations is in fact liberating. And I've come to agree with him. Think of it this way. If we give up this delusion that we are the heroes of our own stories, the authors of our own destinies, then we might be able to view life as a raucous group project where we can help shape others and they can shape us for the better. I love Brian's book and so did our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink. In fact, they loved it so much, they named it one of the eight best works of nonfiction published this year. And today, Brian returns to the show to chat with one of those curators, Daniel Pink. They spoke about how embracing this idea that we don't have essential selves could reshape debates around gender identity, immigration policy, and even the fundamental American notion of freedom. It's a wise, surprising, enlightening conversation like only Daniel Pink can deliver. Reading Brian's book, he says, changed how he interacts with other people. Maybe listening to this episode will have the same effect on you, whoever that is. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
Brian, thanks for joining us on the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. So this is a fascinating, fascinating book. I'm going to cut right to the chase here, okay? I'm going to read you a line. It's on page 30. Uh, This book (laughs) triggered a whole cascade of existential crises for me about who I really was as a person. And so I'm going to read you a line that I think is about what you're asking the reader to do in this book, Selfless. And you say, I'm asking you to consider the possibility that you don't exist in the way many of us feel we do, that there is no internal, stable, unchanging core you were born with that captures yourself. So now, listeners, you understand why that triggered an existential crisis, because he's basically saying you don't exist in the way that we think. This is basically what the book is about. But give us what you mean by that. You know, I mean it exactly the way you read it, that you think you're you in there somewhere, and it was you were born that way, and you'll always have been that way, you'll always be that way, and it's just... Not true. And here's the thing. I get the crisis it evokes, but if you think about it for just a second, it must be true. I don't know. Like, what, what, what would it even be? What would it be to be some you in there that was at, there at birth? Do you even remember who you were 10 years ago? <laughs> well, well, but, but that's a great, but that's a great point because because of what you're saying is that there isn't any kind of internal stable self, essential self, and that any kind of self that exists is constructed by our world. Is that a fair description? That's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's not like I deny a physical self. It's not that I deny there's some you know physical body, their genes, all that stuff. But I don't think that's what people have in mind when they talk about the self. That's not what they're talking about. There's so many interesting things about this book. Uh, I found myself basically underlining almost all of it because it really challenges certain kinds of of conventions here about about what we believe about ourselves and about other people. Has anyone ever told you this book is almost like a work of philosophy, as much yes. as a work of social science? What you're you, you you're smiling about that? What is how does that how mm. do you react to that? Um. You know, I'm a social psychologist, and I I think I'm more at the intersection of psychology and philosophy. And historically, psychology came in part from natural philosophy, right? right? There is a branch of psychology that is, uh, you know, I don't know, derivation or evolution of philosophical thought. And I think I'm, I'm in that tradition in this book. So let's let's get some background here. I wanted to explore some of the ideas here about the self and how the self is constructed. But how did you get to this topic? Of all the topics in the world, <laughs> how do you get to something like what is the self and is there a true essential self? Like how did you come to this? Well, first, how isn't everybody at this? Like what else is there? Okay, all right, <laughs> all right. Um, but for me, you know, it was. I think I, I say this in the book. I believe I say some of this anyway. I grew up in Chicago. Right. I, I moved around a lot in Chicago. And Chicago is a very segregated city. And so when you go from neighborhood to neighborhood, they're very, they're like sharp differences. Mm -hmm. Um, And I became really interested in making sense of that. Like, what are those differences? Why are they they the way they are? Why are people's life chances so affected by where they happen to be? And how do we allow that to continue when it's so inequitable? So that's a big part of where I got into social science is trying to understand the nature of our social experience. And as you get in, you know, I'm I'm really a curious person. And at another level, it's like, who are we? Like, it's a it's a kind of a natural extension of that. Um, When you start to say, like, wow, our life courses are being so affected by where we happen to be. What does Mm. that say about me and who I am and how much of me is driving my outcomes and the way life feels for me. And so I think it was really 
just that, that natural kind of extension of the question, why is my life experience the way it is? The next question is, who am I? Right. And what does that mean? And it just takes you down a rabbit hole and, and there you go. So I'm going to raise another kind of um, uh, kind of philosophical question that, that you raise in the book. When you wake up in the morning and know it's you, what is it that you know? There has to be some degree of flexibility in your recognition of your own face. Because every morning you get up, you do look different, right? You're not confused. You know, a week ago, you look different than you look now. You're not confused about who you are. And so there has to be some degree of flexibility. So it's not just your face. It's the sense that, like, I'm controlling my face. The mm. sense that, like, I walked up in front of this mirror, so that must be me. There's all these things that are kind of... um built-in theories about how things work that we aren't aware of. We feel like we just see ourselves, but there's a lot going on for that self-recognition to happen in that way. And I think that's interesting. And it, it suggests places where that can be not as it seems to us, because we're not really fully aware of how we're making sense of who we are. And how are we doing that? I mean, part of it is our perceptual system, obviously, but part of it also mm -hmm. is our social system. Yeah, our memory. And it's also, there's stability in our lives in part because we have stability in our social lives, mm. right? I think that's a, a part of it. I, I think that if you move somewhere and really like all all contact with your current life was cut off, there would there'd be some confusion for a bit in terms of who you were. Like you would probably not be quite certain. I don't, I don't mean that physically, but certainly there would be some psychological work need to, that would need to be done to make sense of who you were in this other situation. And, and my guess is for people who have immigrated, they probably have a sense of that. Mm. If you traveled extensively internationally and alone, it can be a little bit confusing at, at for a while, after mm. a while. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is something we we manage all the time, even as we transition to a new job or a new some a new stage in life, I think there's a sense of reestablishing who we are, or a better way of saying it is creating who we are in that new circumstance. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of what you talk about in the book has to do with freedom, and at some level, I mean, I don't think you use do you use the word do you use a concept of free will in here? I'm not sure, but the, I try to avoid it. Yeah, okay, good, smart move. So. Um, <laughs> But, but you talk a lot, but you talk explicitly about freedom. You say you can't be free and have a self. What do you mean by that? The simplest way to say it is like a self is a definition. It, it says what's, what's in and what's out. And freedom in the most extreme way is being able to be anything. Well, if you, once you're a self, you can, there's, it says what you are and what you are not, mm -hmm. right? So it's a limit on freedom by definition. But you're also saying that we're cre created in some sense or in a large sense by others. So when you think about it, gender is a great example. Most people have a strong sense of themselves as being a man or a woman. And obviously there's fluidity and there's more of that today. And people mm -hmm. talk about being, you know, non-binary. But let's simplify for a second and all, recognizing all of that, let's just focus for a second on just, you're, are you a man or a woman? Mm -hmm. It's very useful for most people because it tells them where they belong. It tells them what people expect of them. It tells them what clothes they should shop for, right? And in that sense, it's defining. It helps us make sense of ourselves and navigate the world and relationships, et cetera. But then when you ask, where does that come from? You could say, I mean, what most people, not most, many people want to say is it's just biological. You're born mm -hmm. a, a man or a woman. And I would say like, that's, it's true that we're born with certain sexual characteristics, 
But that's not what we're talking about, right? What I just described wasn't sexual characteristics. It's like, how do you engage in the world? And how does the world see you? And how do you make sense of things? And what I argue in the book is all of that is social, mm. right? People tell you you're a man or you, you want to be a man and you present yourself as that way. And that dictates how you engage with people. And then you respond to how they respond to you. And all of that, all those things, that it is what it means to be a man or a woman. Um, and that's, that's hard for people because I think, again, people think I'm born a man or woman. And what I'm saying is, it's really an ongoing process that you're doing socially. Like you're engaging with people and they treat you in that way and you respond in that way and it becomes stable and you st start to think of it as somehow inherently, it's in you as opposed to something that you're doing with people. Right. And you also talk about it in terms of the biology of it being sort of different between what's, what's sufficient and what's necessary. I think that, that mm -hmm. to me was a helpful way of, of understanding it. That is being born biologically a female is sufficient to have the identity, the self as a woman, but it's not necessary. Right. So for many people, like you're born biologically this way, and that's sufficient for you then to think of yourself in these terms and engage with other people in that way. But if you weren't, you could still have that same social engagement. It's, it's certainly possible. And I think you see that more and more now in society. And from my perspective, that's what it is to be a woman, that social, that social construction. And the sex doesn't dictate that that's not possible one way or the other, right? It, it's the world recognizing you as a, as a woman. Yes. Right. So for someone like me, like, I, you know, I was born physically male. I present as a man. I see myself in that way. People engage with me that way. So there's no, there's no challenge. It all makes sense. It's easy, right? So people, you can, I can then think that I was born this way. But if I had been born physically male, but, you know, engage with people as a woman and people engage with me as a woman, then I'd argue I would be a woman, but I could see more clearly how that wasn't something that I was born with, right? And it wasn't a physical thing. Um, and I think that when you see that in other people, it, it can challenge how you feel about yourself, right? It, it challenges where, where your own gender comes from. And you can see people responding to other people's choices or how they show up in ways that seem personal. And I think that's why Interesting. Right? it's challenging. Yeah, yeah. One good example of this is a person who I'd actually forgotten about, um, who made the news you know, several years ago. I'd totally forgotten about her, which is uh, Rachel uh, Dolezal, Dolezal? Um, Dolezal, I believe, Dolezal. Yeah. Um, Tell mm -hmm. us her story because she's, a, I think the way you describe her story and her notion of the self and how much who you are depends on the consent of other people out there is it's pretty it's a pretty fascinating tale and and truly as I said I I, I had forgotten about her so tell us the story of, of of Rachel and what it teaches us about selfhood yeah so Rachel Dolezal I'm gonna say these in way in a way that some people <laughs> when I finish this they might be not happy about but I'll just I'll tell the story in a way that is the way it kind of unfolded. So she was a black woman who lived in Spokane and she was really interested in issues that, that affected the black community and ended up being the head of the, I believe, NAACP out there. One day, <laughs> someone confronted her about her identity and it turned out that she was born to a white family. Yeah. Like her parents are both white. Two, two white parents. She was raised as a, a white girl and she, as a child, from her, by her account, always thought of herself as a black person. As she got older, 
the way she looked, the way she dressed, the way she engaged, it all moved towards this kind of black identity. And people in the black community, again, accepted her as such. And everyone thought of her as black. And she had a black husband and had a black child and ran the NAACP and her, her local NAACP chapter. And so the question is, like, what does that tell us about race? What do we mm. make of that? And I, and I argue there's, there's kind of the three options. There's one, which is Rachel, and her claim was that like race is more than just what you're born as. It's like what you accept personally. That's a simplified view of her position. I think of myself as black. I've always been black. It doesn't matter that I was born white. I, I, I'm black. Right. So it's kind of a, a personal choice. The second is like a version of what many of the people who were really upset thought. You're born what you are and you misrepresented mm-hmm. that. You're white when you were born, you're white now, and you presented yourself as black, which was not true, and people were angry about that. And there's a third option, which is what I argue, is that she was born white, she became black, she was black, and then she became a not black woman. She was no longer black once she was not accepted as such. Okay, so so let's let's stop there. So when you say she was black, like that's that can be like for for, for one of the groups for for many of the groups you're talking about here, that's a controversial claim. Why was she black? Like uh, under 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 the the Lowry theory of of selfhood, why was she black? Because okay, I'll, I'll give you my answer, and I'll say more a little bit more about why I think that. So she was black because. In my mind, to be black is to honestly believe yourself to be black, to sincerely believe yourself to be black, and to be accepted as such by the black community. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's that's what there is, right? There's no, in my mind, the rest of it is adjacent, like not unimportant, but not definitional. And in the book, I get into more detail on this. So I don't want people to, I mean, because it's just that alone, <laughs> I'm sure it can it can raise hackles for some people, but... What I really do is push on like, what does it mean to be black? Define it for me, right? And then I, I give all these examples where you're like, okay, if it's to be raised in a, in a black way, what if there's a white child that's adopted by a black family and their full experience is like a, a, a black experience in terms of their childhood, being the way they were raised is, are they black? You know, what if, and if it's, uh, alternatively, what if a, a white family adopts a child that clearly presents as black? but they've only been raised by a white family. They've been in the right white community, all their mannerisms, all those things read as white to people. Is that is that child black? And then you can just start playing with genetics. Like, mm-hmm. okay, what if you're 5% black? Are you black enough? Is it, so you just, when you start with these definitions, they all kind of run into these problems where mine, I think is pretty clear. It's a social idea. And so that means that it's defined by social interaction and social belief. It's actually really useful. And, you know, this country has been dealing with race since this before it's even before it was a country. I think it's become even more challenging now because you have the the, the, the dividing lines are less stark. And you talk about this law uh, in the 1920s about whether a Chinese immigrant is a is a white person. And we're seeing that revive right now, which is like are Hispanics whites. There was a time you know where italian americans were not considered white right so mm-hmm. so so but but i think your definition is actually really powerful and helps us make sense of this complicated world because what you're saying in my interpretation is it's there there are two dimensions of it one what do i believe about myself two how do other people see see me and with rachel she had the first one i see myself as black and then for a moment other people saw me as black you got both components you're black is that accurate 
That's right. Like, and I, I guess another way of saying it, here's a metaphor I think yeah. people can imagine, can easily accept. It's these groups are like a family, right? You're in the family if the family accepts you as being in the family. That's a good, that's a good metaphor. Yeah. Right. So if somebody's adopted into the family, they're still a member of the family. You wouldn't say they're not really in the family. Like, okay, yeah, right. they're adopted. How they got there is not relevant. They're a member of the family. Right. Um, and I think, I think people then get upset because they, on the Rachel thing, the other reason they get upset is they feel like she got into the family under false pretenses. And they're like, you know what we mean. It's like, I, I guess, but I, I, but I would say there, and this is a harder, I don't spend a lot of time defending this. I would say it doesn't matter why you accept the person yeah. to, if they're accepted and that that's what matters. Yeah. Um, and I get people can be very upset about <laughs> how she got accepted. Yeah. But, but again, if you have these two things, it's, it's basically, if you have somebody saying, this is who I am, and then the community of which they're, they claim to be a part says, yes, we see you at, at that way. You have both components. With her, she, she had this sort of crazy life where she basically decided that she was something that superficially she might not have been. The community in which she claimed to be a part said, yes, you are that. Then the community changed its mind and essentially rescinded that. And so... So she needed two components here and she lost one and that's mm-hmm. the way it works. And that's, I think it's, I think it's actually a, just a, a really brilliant way to think about sort of what we are because you can't be, you, I mean, you say this explicitly multiple times, you can't have an identity on your own. It's a social thing. Yeah. Right? Identity is a social thing. So you can't do it by yourself. That's just what it is. I think that's the part that makes people deeply uncomfortable, right? Like I am who I am independent of anyone else. Like, well, no, no, you're not. Right. Which is to certain ears, it almost resonates as kind of un-American. You know what I mean? Because it's like you have this, you know, like you have this sort of individual notion that I, that I am completely 100% self-determined when you're actually not. Who you are is determined in part by other people. I mean, you say that we bring all of our relationships to every encounter. So this is a very crowded conversation then, you and I, right? You know? <laughs> Indeed it is. You know? Indeed so, but, it t- is. but tell us what you mean by that, because I found that super interesting. I think the metaphor of that is super interesting, that when I go into an encounter with somebody, it's not me as this sort of essential, integral, single figure. It's the accumulation of me and all my relationships coming into that. Tell us, tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, what I say is like, whenever you say I, you really should say we. Mm. I mean, you don't think of it that way, but no. that's that's the reality. And and let's, I'll stick with gender, right? Like, yeah. how do you know what it is to be a man? When I interact with you, I assume you're a man, I interact with you as such, but you bring what it means for you to be a man from your world, right? Like, how does that construct it in your world, mm-hmm. right? And that's what I'm interacting with. And similarly, when you interact with me, it's like, what does it mean to be a black man? What does it mean to be a professor? All those things. Right. It's like a cast of characters that are constructing that. And that's what you're engaging with to some extent, yeah. right? And so there's no way you can engage with someone without engaging with the social world they come from. Here's what I will say. That's something I think people find more, it's maybe interesting. Every encounter you have with another person is an encounter with a whole nother world. It's a whole nother world. That's an amazing thing when you think about it. It is. It really is. And I think people... Sometimes take take that for granted. Like it's an it's an amazing thing. You talk to someone else, it's like they live a whole they live in a whole different world than you live in. Like wow, the window into like what's possible and what you don't see and what you're not a part of is should be amazing. And the knock on consequences of that is that when you encounter that other person, the encounter itself, the experience then then changes who you are. 
so again, I don't want to go, go completely woo-woo on people listening to this yet, but like the person I am when we started this conversation is different from the person I'm going to be when we, when we end this conversation because of that encounter. That, that, there's something, but there's, some, there's something kind of beautiful about that. Mm-hmm. Every interaction is a moment of creation, yeah. like both in both directions. It's amazing. And what's funny about this is when I talk about it, sometimes I'm like, oh, this is, I fear this is going to sound woo-woo. And the thing is like, <laughs> I'm the least woo-woo person you will ever meet. You're a scientist. That's the thing. You're a scientist. You're a social psychologist. You teach it at, at, at Stanford GSB, for God's sake. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like that's not touchy-feely, you know? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, people that know me would be shocked to hear anyone call me a woo-woo person. Yeah. Not only that, I'm not, I'm not generally an optimistic person either so i'm not like i'm not like rainbows and fairy tales that's right. not generally my 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 space and sort of like pop relationship advice you have to say you know, people say oh in order to have a meaningful relationship with someone i don't mean romantic relationship any kind of relationship you have to actually know yourself first before having that but but i think you might disagree with that yeah, I mean, what I disagree with is what they say about what is know yourself. What does that mean? Yeah. People say that without thought, right? Like, what is the self you're talking about exactly? So if you wanted to say, like, know the world that you come from, know the world that constructs you, like, I think I'd be okay with that. If what you mean is know your internal core, I don't know what people are talking about. Same way I say, like, I don't know what authenticity is. I don't know what people are talking about. Right. I mean, I think, but wouldn't, wouldn't you say that there is essentially no, you know, stable, essential, internal self to, that's just another way of, of, of saying what a core is, that mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's in flux, it's socially determined, it changes over time. And thank goodness, doesn't, I mean, doesn't that make life fun? Yeah, but it also, I mean, but arguably, you could, you could also reframe that as growth in a way. Like, I, like mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be the same person I was when I was three years old. I'm glad. Or when I was 33 years old. I'm glad that I, yeah. you know, at some level am different. I mean, I hope I am. Like, I hope today is different than tomorrow, that I'm a different person. I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I hold out the possibility of growth, even though sometimes I wonder. <laughs> The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
come back to freedom here for a moment here, because I think that one of the things that's interesting is you sort of push back on the idea of that, that human beings actually truly want a lot of freedom. And you also say a very provocative line here. You say, the line between compulsion and choice is fascinating and far less sharp than you might imagine. I was tempted to do this whole interview is basically find 10 provocative lines, just read them to you and say, please discuss. So, on that, so let's do with that one. All right. The line between compulsion and choice is fascinating and far less sharp than you imagine. So the line between compulsion and, 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 and choice. So do we have freedom? Do we want freedom? Do we need freedom? I don't know that we need it. No, mm. I, don't, I don't know what it would mean to need it. I think we want the feeling of freedom, which is different than wanting freedom. To explain what you mean by that. I think that's actually a really useful distinction. If what you mean by freedom is like, I want to feel like I decide things in my life that matter, sure, you, you can have that. But by freedom, you really mean, I want to be uninfluenced by other people in the situation. I want to know that some internal essence of me is deciding free from influence. Like, nah, that's probably not possible. And even if it was, you don't want it. Oh. And I think that sometimes people think that's what they want. And I'm like, no, that's not what you want. So what, what is it that we want? What, we, we want affiliation. We want stability. We want... I think we want a mix of things. We certainly want stability. I think we want the world to seem orderly. We want to feel like we can predict what's going to happen in the world. I think that that is a, a precondition for a sense of safety and security, I think. So I think we want those things. I think we also want to feel like we are consequential, mm. like we make decisions. And I think that's where the freedom comes in, the sense that I chose. And that, that I think people want to have that experience. I choose. I'm, I matter. I make a difference. And I don't know that I'm challenging that, but I think the way you understand it has to be maybe tweaked for, for most people. <laughs> There are two studies that I found like super interesting, and I'd like to have you talk about them. One of the many studies that I found really interesting was the study of people playing a computer game that involved throwing a ball to each other. Explain that study and then what happened when you excluded people from that study or you excluded people from the game. Yeah, so it's this game. It's like it's it's an old old, old set of studies, and um, it's on studies on ostracism. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you have people kind of sit at a computer screen, and they have an avatar, and their people are tossing a ball back and forth among, let's say, three people. And eventually, you just start excluding one person, and you look and see how that person reacts. And, the, and, and in essence, people find ostracism incredibly painful. Yeah. And and some studies have even found evidence that um, it looks. Um, if you look at people's patterns of brain activation, it, it looks similar to physical pain, like social exclusion. Yeah. So people are very sensitive to not having that um, social engagement or being excluded from social engagement. Here is this game. You're throwing a mm -hmm. ball around on a computer and two essentially strangers exclude you and there's actually an injury there. That just shows yeah. you like like how deeply we want that kind of affiliation and how much ostracism hurts us. But then it actually, this, I think this goes partly to sort of how freely determined we are. Then we give people a test having to do with conformity and what happens. Oh, uh, yes. Oh, uh, yeah. And those tests, then people conform more, right? So they give, they, and sometimes they might even give the answer they think is wrong if it, if it connects them to people in the group. Because, I mean, here's the thing about those studies. They are a powerful demonstration of something that people should know 
and maybe in individualist societies, we try to pretend it's not true. We need other people. Mm -hmm. We are evolved to be in communion with other human beings. And, and we, we, we need that. And when we don't have it, we try to repair quickly. And the way I talk about this when I teach executives is like, look, human beings are soft and weak. You will not last very long by yourself. Historically speaking, without a community, you were literally dead. And we still feel that today. Mm -hmm. We've evolved to be terrified of being excluded from the social community. We are intensely social creatures. So among the many provocative things you say in here is um, not only do you talk about selfhood, but you also talk about the very notion of a nation state. So you're going mm -hmm. from the sort of like the, the micro to the, to, the, to, to the macro. And you say, it might sound strange to suggest that nations exert more influence on the self than say partners, life partners or family. So, okay, so let me, let me read that again. You say, I'm quoting, <laughs> it might sound strange <laughs> to suggest that nations exert more influence on the self than say life partners or family. And my notes to myself is, yeah, that does sound strange. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> All right. Think about marriage. How many people are out there like chasing marriage? I don't know these days, but like structuring some portion of their life around finding a, a marriage partner or mm -hmm. a mate for this. Why? For this legal construct. It's mm -hmm. not, you can find, there's all sorts of ways to find people to have in your life. There's all sorts of ways to have romantic partners, all sorts of potential ways of managing romantic engagements or sexual engagements. You don't, there's nothing necessary about marriage. But nation states or outside entities have created this because sometimes it serves their purposes for any number of reasons. And it shapes not just how you think about marriage, but how you organize significant aspects of your life. Absolutely. Right. And you, you don't think of that as the nation state, but you could, you could think of that as the nation state. I mean, it, what I say is that it's not just that it a nation state creates laws that limit you. Nation states create ideas and concepts that change what you can even conceive of. The nation state, which again, we I think a lot like contemporary human beings tend to think that a nation, that the idea of nations sort of mm -hmm. emanated from nature, that has always been, there always been nations, which is absolutely not. It's something that human beings can uh, created for a whole mm -hmm. set of of reasons, whether it's administration or social order or whatever. But I mean, I think one of the, one of the things that sort of this book is helpful on is some of the arguments, the even the vitriol the United States is dealing with right now, mm -hmm. which is essentially when you have a nation state, your membership in that nation state is part of who you are, part of yourself. Who you admit into that nation state becomes a big issue. 100%. I mean, and you can see this all over the world, especially right now. I mean, yeah. as we speak, there's a, you know, there's a war going on in the Middle East, you know, that was just initiated. And you, you think about the nation state and as it becomes definitional, then you have to kind of guard those boundaries, right? Like the same way you want to guard the boundaries of your family. Like, you don't, nobody can just come in, right? Um, because it changes who you are. If you are in part defined by your family or your nation, then who comes into your nation has an effect on who you are. Exactly. You can, you can feel alienated from your own nation because the people coming in seem different from you in a way that's problematic from your perspective, whatever reason that is. So it really becomes very personal, even though at some level, 
you see people being upset about immigration in places where there's not even very much immigration, might not even know any immigrant, any, any, any person that's immigrated there and they're still very, has very strong feelings about it because I'd argue it's, it's about who they are as a member of that nation. That they're exactly. About. I think that this, some of the uh, writing and analysis you have, I think helps, you don't go explicitly there, but, but, but by talking about the nation state and by talking about the nation state being essentially a construct that for better or worse determines ourself or who we are ourself is at the moment. Because if you were to ask me, if, if you were to ask me, who am I? I think that being an American would be pretty high on the list. But what if I lived, you know, 400 kilometers to the north? And I, or I just think about somebody who was born on one side of the U.S.-Canadian border, the U.S.-Mexican mm-hmm. border, and not. It's like this border is a fiction in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, but I think that, that a lot of what you're talking about goes to some of the vitriol in the United States, because I think a lot of the vitriol in the United States is rooted by some people saying, I know what an American is. And some of these people out here who I'm seeing, they're not really Americans. Yes. And I, I think, I, I don't know, I might have had to cut this from the book at some point, but a nation is a people. Like when you think about it, that that's what a nation is. A nation state is just the state is what's added to the, you know, the kind of the infrastructure, the legal systems, et cetera, that you build around the nation. But a nation is a people. When you think about it that way, um, it can change your understanding of of what, what the country is. Because the people, who who are the people? What people? Like we make that up. We decide who they are. And then we reinforce the boundaries, right? And over time, those boundaries can start to seem natural, even though we constructed them. I want to wrap this up with a few uh, other questions here, just to make sure we cover these things here. So you have another uh, uplifting line here where you say, we all live in and contend with the shadow of nothingness. And uh, so you have a whole chapter on meaning. So so tell us, what are your thoughts on on meaning? What is it? Why is it important? And how does it connect to the social definition of the self? Yeah, so meaning is, um, there's a lot of actually research in social psychology on meaning. And Mm -hmm. meaning is the sense that, um, I'm going to say this in a way that isn't circular. I don't probably won't. It'll be circular. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, That that life matters, right? That we matter. That... um, there's something that's beyond this moment, right? And the reason it's, it's a little bit circular is because to have meaning, the research suggests you need three things. You need three things. You need coherence. Mm-hmm. You have to have a sense of who you are in the world and the way those things work. You need purpose. When you get up, there has to be something to do. Mm-hmm. And you need, and this is often considered the most important, you need significance. Mm-hmm. Or another term they use for that is mattering. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that is, you need to feel like there's more than just the present moment, right? It, it's not all absurd. The universe is not absurd. You do stuff and it's all forgotten. Who cares? And the reason this is relevant to the self is it, it certainly um, is really critical to the first and the third. So the self is the way most of us have coherence. Mm-hmm. We talked about gender. It's like it tells you like what kind of clothes to wear, what people expect of you. Like it tells you something about your place in the world. Right, the self, that's what the self is. So it provides coherence. And this is the one I find most interesting. I think the self kind of works as a time machine. It allows you to think of the past as relevant to you, right? Like your ancestors, your family that existed before you were born, like you think those stories are are important and matter. Um, So it allows you to think of yourself in the past and more importantly for meaning, it allows you to project yourself into the future. Interesting. Because I'll stick with nation for a second. If you think that you're defined in part by the nation, 
as long as the nation persists, some aspect of you persists. So the self allows for something you could call symbolic immortality, right? Like to the extent that things you are connected with continue to exist, if those things really are a part of you, not just something you connect to, but in part define who you are, they exist, then you continue to exist. And, and here's the goal going away from the woo-woo, there's studies that show things like when people think about their own imminent death or their, the fact they will die, they often show a greater commitment to those things that are connected to them, like their country. Like there's a study that shows, for mm. example, if you ask people, how long do you think the United States will exist? And people give you a number, 500 years, 3,000 years, whatever. How long do you think the United States will last? People who are thinking about their death and think of themselves as American give you bigger numbers. Interesting. Yeah. Right. So this is not, even though it sounds like, oh, just woo-woo like this, you can see people, even though they don't articulate this, they demonstrate that it's kind of the way they live their lives. Like they care, even if they can't tell you that they care or why they care. But this, you can is, see this, it. this is why you have people who use the word legacy. I mean, you were right, mm-hmm. right about that. I mean, it's, yes. it should be like, well, why do you care? You're going to be gone. Why, what, You'll what be do you dead. Care? Why do you care? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But no, I want to leave a legacy. And, that, and that's interesting. All right. So uh, at the end of this book, so this is a very thoughtful, interesting, provocative book. It really made mm-hmm. me, I had to actually put it down and stop and think multiple times. Thank you. That's, that's one of the best compliments I've received. I love that. And, and then it's like, then I get to the final chapter and I'm like, okay, so what do I do with this? insight. All right. I've had this kind of rich intellectual experience. I've Mm -hmm. been rattled a little bit about who I am. I've started like looking at myself in the mirror differently. Then I say, what do I do with this? And and you say, the truth is, I don't think it's my place to tell you what you should do with it. But is there anything, (laughs) is there, is there, is there anything that we, is there guidance here on how sort of to lead our lives in a daily way? That is, if, if we're rethinking where the self comes from, how, if at all, does that change us or change what we do? Forget about changing us. How does it change what we do? How should it change what we do? Yeah, so I'm going to give you my the first answer, which is um, the one that I, I, I give my editor, and then I'll give then I'll answer your question okay. the way that I'm, I will, I'm typically forced to. First, I would say, <laughs> <laughs> if you read were reading the book and you put it down to think about something or you, you know, I, I love to think about like being on trains. You stopped and closed it for a second and looked out the window yeah, and exactly. contemplated something. I'm like, I feel like that's enough, right? I feel like you will be changed in ways that I can't describe to you. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how that changed you, but if you did that, I'm pretty confident you will have been changed. Now, what I think people want is some sort of like, tell me how I should do something with this. That becomes harder, and that's what I usually resist. But here, I'll, I'll, I'll give you something anyway. Okay. <laughs> and this is more, the reason I don't like this, I'll just give this caveat, is because it's more woo-woo and abstract than I would like. But here, here, here goes anyway. Every moment of contact you have with someone is a moment of creation. Hmm. They're creating you, and you're creating them in return. We don't take those interactions seriously enough. We behave as if we're islands bumping into other people and everyone has responsibility for themselves. And that just is almost certainly not true. And you are missing an opportunity if you don't take seriously that interaction. Again, as I said this earlier in our conversation, every interaction is a window into a whole nother world. And I don't think we have enough awe for that because we don't see people in their full complexity, right? 
we don't see everything they bring to bear. We somehow think we're the only um, protagonist in, in every interaction we have, right? These other people don't have lives and the world is full, of, is full as ours. And for that reason, we leave something on the table in interactions. So what I would say, I guess, is take seriously the responsibility you have in every interaction you engage with and also understand that those things are changing you as well. And just that awareness, I think, will change the way you interact with people and change your experience of life in a significant way. I, I think that's great. And I think that's actually super useful. And, it, and I, I have to say, it's like, that is a way that I think that this book, for whatever, it's a unit of an N of one, your mileage may vary. But for me, it did make me think more about interactions. And actually, I, I had this conversation with my wife. She said, I was telling her about the book. She said, and she said, actually, no joke. She said, what do you, okay, so what do you do with that? And I'm like, well, I'm not sure. But I think one thing that I will do with it is recognize exactly that an encounter you have with somebody else actually changes them and changes you, uh, whether you want it or not. And it, you can bring a degree of intention to that and that you can you can say, like, I like I want this encounter with someone else to be enriching to that person. And I think that what it what it, at some level that it does is that it to me, it it if you think in this way, you might actually act with greater kindness. You might actually act with greater empathy. Uh, you certainly will act with greater curiosity. And so when we think about kindness, curiosity, empathy, that that's pretty good. And so if it gets people acting that way, I think it's a big win. But regardless, this is an absolutely fascinating, at times mind-boggling book. It's Selfless, The Social Creation of You, written by Brian Lowry of Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, Brian, thanks for the conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. And that's our show. If you'd like to hear more from Brian, he made a beautiful audio e-course exclusively for the Next Big Idea app. It features the key insights from Selfless. And to access it, all you have to do is go to your app store and search for the Next Big Idea. Thanks again to Brian Lowry and Daniel Pink. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know and let them know. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. As I mentioned at the top, we're doing a special event in New York City on November 1st, followed by a dinner. We'd love to see you. And we're gonna be doing more live events, often with cocktails and dinner with our favorite thinkers, because we love doing them. For those of you who wanna be on the short list, we've created two new ways to be part of our community, executive and innovator memberships. Curious? Go to nextbigideaclub.com. This episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger. Sound designed by Mike Toda. The Next Big Idea is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm Rufus Criscom. See you next week.